This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Charlemagne and the Foundations of Christian Civilization Many modern historians dismiss the work of great men. Real history, they claim, arises from everyday experiences of the common people. Certainly, the everyday lives of people are important. However, this theory of history overlooks the fact that a few great people have influenced history far beyond that of millions of the common people. One of those great men, perhaps the greatest of the great men, is Charlemagne. In October 1972, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira spoke of Charlemagne and his role in history. Today, the Return to Order moment brings you that talk. Today we have a text on Charlemagne taken from Weiss's Historia Universal. Quote, In 772, age 30, Charles took over the government of the kingdom of the Franks. Charles was rightly called the Great. He deserved that name as a general and conqueror, the one who ordered and legalized in his immense empire and as a promoter of the entire spiritual life of the West. Under his rule, Christian ideas won victories over the barbarians. His life was a constant struggle against rudeness and barbarism, which threatened the Catholic religion and the new culture that was being born. He undertook no less than 53 military expeditions, namely 18 against the Saxons, 1 against Aquitaine, five against the Lombards, seven against the Arabs of Spain, one against the Thuringians, four against the Avars, two against the Britons, one against the Bavarians, four against the Slavs, five against the Saracens of Italy, three against the Danes, and two against the Greeks. At Christmas in the year 800, Pope St. Leo III elevated him to the dignity of emperor, thus founding the noblest temporal institution of Christendom, the Holy Roman German Empire. Charles died on February 29, 814, after receiving Holy Communion. According to the legend, he was buried in a niche in the Cathedral of Aix-la-Chapelle in an erect position, seated on a throne, girded with a sword, with a book of the Gospels in his hands. He is the model of Catholic emperors, the prototype of a gentleman, and the central figure of the vast majority of heroic medieval songs." Unquote. The extraordinary figure of Moses comes to mind when talking about Charlemagne and his deeds and greatness. Moses founded the civil order in the chosen people, who were the prefigure of Christendom. He received the revelation of the Ten Commandments of the Law, took the chosen people out of captivity to the gates of the Promised Land, and established the foundations for the chosen people to settle down and for the Savior to be born from them. Charlemagne had a task essentially analogous to that of Moses. He took the genuinely chosen people, who were no longer the Jews, but Catholics. The Jews were a foreshadowing of the chosen people. Still, the Catholic people were the chosen people, then reduced to servitude by the worst adversaries. 
by waging a tremendous war. He overcame all those adversaries and laid the foundations of Christian civilization. To give you a little idea of what Charlemagne's task was like, we have to consider the situation in his time. As you know, the Western Roman Empire covered all of Western Europe until the 5th century AD. It extended its borders from the Rhine and the Danube to Portugal in the west, England in the north, and Italy in the south. Therefore, it was an immense unit, all the more so because communication routes were so much slower at the time than today, making it very difficult for an emperor to govern that entire area. So in proportion to the administrative and political machine that had to keep it together, that empire had genuinely gigantic proportions. The avalanche of barbarism overthrew the empire. The barbarians were either Arians or heathens. Arianism was a heresy that can be loosely compared to Protestantism. An Arian was as anti-Catholic as a Protestant, a heretical enemy excommunicated and cut off from the church. An Arian bishop named Uphilas had perverted heathen barbarians to the Arian religion. So most of the barbarians who invaded the Roman Empire, which was Catholic, were Arians intending to impose the Arian religion. Other barbarians were heathens, seeking to impose paganism. As barbarians, both were incompatible with civilization by habit, psychology, and natural tendency. They settled in the Roman Empire of the West and went about haphazardly thrashing civilization. For you to have an idea of the barbarism of these people, suffice it to say that barbarians usually slept in public city squares because they felt short of breath when sleeping inside a house. They did not understand that it was possible to sleep inside a house. There was a barbarian tribe that felt short of breath even when sleeping in a city. When night came, they ordered the city gates to be open and went to sleep in the bush because they could not breathe in the city's public square. A severe problem the barbarians faced was if it was worth learning to read. They saw the Romans were literate, but very decadent, corrupt, and poor soldiers, and they thought that literacy was the reason for that. So, they had utter contempt for any literate man, seen more or less as effeminate, a sissy in English, a maricas in Portuguese, and a maricon in Spanish. You will understand how their ideas were all messed up. When the barbarians began to settle on European soil and to impose their detestable tyranny, it turned out that the church remained standing in that collapsed empire. The Western Roman Empire disappeared, but the church, with its dioceses, convents, and so on, remained standing. Thus, there was a path to salvation to try to get out of the abyss. It was to strengthen the influence of the church and therefore lift Europe back from the miserable situation into which it had fallen. Then comes another catastrophe. Mohammedans invaded the Iberian Peninsula because of the laxity and treason among the Ostrogoths who inhabited Spain. Spain was almost entirely conquered. 
and from the Pyrenees, the Arab wave began to invade semi-Roman and semi-barbarian Europe. Many Mohammedans would not even travel through Spain. Instead, they took boats, landed in Italy and southern France, and began their invasions. So, the living wound, which was Europe at the time, began to sustain beatings from the Mohammedans as well. It was at that moment, when all seemed lost, that God raised this extraordinary man who was Charlemagne. A man who, in my opinion, was a true prophet. That is to say, a man who realized the kingdom of God because he had the gift of understanding what it consisted of and the gift of leading others to unite their wills for that realization. Moreover, he had the gift of overcoming obstacles that stood in the way of that achievement and winning. Charlemagne belongs to a family that had the kingdom of the Franks for two generations. However, while divided by domestic fights, this family had a particular influence among the Franks, one of the barbarian peoples in Europe. As you have seen, when leading the Franks, Charlemagne waged a series of wars, 50-odd military expeditions in which he completely crushed the barbarians. Afterward, he also contained the Muslim power, and with that, he pushed back the gates of history. History had seemed to condemn the Latin peoples irrevocably to disappear under Germanic and Mohammedan pressure. Charlemagne saved the Latin countries, and by saving them, he saved Catholicity. By all accounts, this man, who performed these extraordinary feats, was a Herculean man. He was tall, with very regular features, and very well built, having perceived something of youth up to his old age. At the same time, when young, he had something of the maturity of old age, and instilled respect as if he were old. And, in his old age, he knew how to infuse enthusiasm as if he were a boy. He was such a kind and gentle man that popular legend says that flowers blossomed along his white beard when he smiled and that his beard was in full bloom. He was called the king of the flowery beard. From there you can imagine the richness of that personality. He inflicted terror in combat. When his adversaries knew that Charlemagne was on the front, they had already lost half the battle. Yet, at the same time, he was so kind and so gentle that others thought that flowers grew from his beard. This great warrior was at the same time the foremost man to give formation to others. He created a group of men that went down in history as the iconic Twelve Peers of Charlemagne. When talking about a peer of Charlemagne, you deal with an ideal relationship. Never in the temporal order was the relationship between a leader and his subjects been so noble, high, and strong. And for that peer, the condition of a subject was categorical. But at the same time, Charlemagne communicated immense grandeur to each peer. Charlemagne's peers were in a different league, all their own. He was so grand that the sum of all his peers did not equal him. A Charlemagne peer projected an aspect of Charlemagne's personality. 
He was like a son and ambassador of Charlemagne, bringing with him, if one could say, all the Charlemanicity, partaking of Charlemagne's majesty, strength, and greatness. Although he was unmistakably unique, there were other Charlemagnes. This relationship shows the beautiful bond that united them to him. Another stunning aspect was the peers' union among themselves without pretenses or envy, aiming only to serve the emperor, and by serving the emperor, to serve the cause of Christian civilization, the Catholic Church, Our Lady, and therefore Our Lord Jesus Christ in the highest heaven. Thus, Charlemagne led through a series of meditations, and hence his peers were closely united. The friendship that brought them together is the ideal model of noble, strong, manly, unpretentious, and loyal friendship. That is the origin of the Christian tradition, whereby the high nobility in all European countries sought the title of peer, a peer of the United Kingdom, a peer of the Kingdom of France. It was a copy of Charlemagne and his peers. Charlemagne personified the perfect relationship with his subjects and elevated them to the status of sons and, quote, others myself, unquote, though he kept them clearly in their positions as subjects. At the same time, this man of fiery piety was illiterate. His illiteracy shows how insignificant it is to learn to read and write. A vice of those who know to read and write believes that thinking begins in a book. When a person wants to start thinking about anything, his first idea is to buy a book to read something and then think about what he read. Charlemagne did not know how to read or write, but he understood reality. He had such profound intelligence and a Catholic notion that, although illiterate, with the help of men like Alcuin, he organized the educational system throughout his empire that we enjoy until today. He participated in bishops' councils and let them decide because they dealt with church matters. But he did speak at the meetings, delved into the theological issues the bishops were addressing, and was usually successful. He was the one who came up with the proper theological formulas without ever having gone through a seminary. As you can see, this monumental man was both a son of the church and her rampart support and glory. He did not infringe upon church rights, but respected her sovereignty and recognized all her power. It was one of the reasons why the church crowned him. Everyone knows the beautiful episode in the year 800 when Charlemagne was at the Basilica of St. John Lateran. The Pope entered bearing a golden crown and declared that he was re-establishing the crumbling Roman Empire in the person of Charlemagne, whom he immediately proclaimed Emperor of the Roman Empire. Charlemagne did not want that out of modesty, but the Pope insisted and took him to a balcony where the whole people cheered him. Long live Charlemagne, our emperor! The Roman Empire was thus restored, which would last 
for a thousand years precisely. This was a most beautiful gesture, the church recognizing and crowning on earth the one that God will indeed have crowned in heaven. A lovely side is the idea of a pope's power. The Roman Empire is an institution that was not born of the popes, but was established by the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate created Roman greatness, and the Roman emperors arose from the decay of the Roman Republic. It was thus a pagan institution Christianized with Constantine. The Pope thought he had the power to rebuild the Roman Empire, and he reestablished and founded the Holy Roman Empire for the defense of the faith. At that moment, the mysterious dialogue between our Lord and St. Peter was realized when our Lord was arrested. Theologians have always interpreted it in this way. Our Lord asked St. Peter if he had swords with him upon being arrested. St. Peter replied, I have two. Our Lord replied, That is enough. The theologians say that St. Peter said he had two swords in hand, the church's sword, which is excommunication, and the state's sword, which is military power, to destroy heresies and liquidate evil. These two swords suffice for St. Peter to fulfill his mission. On that Christmas night, Peter forged for himself a golden sword, the Holy Roman German Empire, with the mission of defending the faith through Christendom. How wonderful! They remind us of very different days from those in which we live, in which everything runs in the exact opposite direction. The Washington-Moscow axis is ready to dominate the world on the one hand, the Beijing-Tokyo axis on the other. All of this seems to complete the domination of this axis over the other face of the earth. And we have paganism on all sides, and on one side only the filth of Protestantism. However, some ideals never die, because they are derived directly from faith and are as immortal as the faith. And when we hear about these episodes, we understand that the history of the world cannot end like this. It cannot simply end in defeat. So there has to be a huge rematch. For the reign of Mary to be established, for which the world was created, the revolution must be trampled underfoot and annihilated. God created the world so that, at a given moment, his kingdom over it would be complete. So that still needs to take place. Remembering these things, we have hope for the future. Nothing is more anachronistic than Charlemagne's empire, but it is a creative anachronism, the memory of which brings hope for the future and a certainty that it will come. We are moving toward restoring that order of which Charlemagne was a symbol. We can ask Charlemagne to pray for us. Not all episodes in his life are entirely clear, and the Church has not definitively clarified whether he is a saint. But in some regions of Europe, it is customary to celebrate the Feast of Blessed Charlemagne. At the time of Pius IX, ancestors of today's progressive movement, struck with zeal, which is the only time they show any, tried to abolish the Feast of Charlemagne. 
But Pius IX issued a brief declaring that veneration of Charlemagne could continue in the places where he is considered blessed. Therefore, tonight, at least within our souls if not in public, we can ask Charlemagne to give us that invincible strength to found the reign of Mary as he established the Middle Ages and was its cornerstone. It is well to recall that St. Joan of Arc said that she owed her mission to the prayers of St. Louis the King and St. Charlemagne. Nothing could be more beautiful, all the more since St. Joan of Arc received revelations from heaven and would have known precisely where St. Louis IX and St. Charlemagne were. So let us say with St. Joan of Arc, your royal and imperial majesties, St. Louis and St. Charlemagne, pray that the revolution ends and the reign of Mary comes soon. This concludes Charlemagne and the Foundations of Christian Civilization. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.